calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to episode 13 of South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 27, Calum's Cove, March 16, 2305. Otto wasn't sure if his father were avoiding him or if he were avoiding his father. Whatever the cause, he hadn't seen his father since he'd been excused while the adults talked about him. His mother hadn't been terribly forthcoming either, but there was no more talk of changing his style of carving, and his work was replaced in the drawer without comment. He sighed. The morning had dawned clear and cold, and the fleet had gone out to fish. Otto prowled the docks, his staff rattling in the breeze, and talked to the workers. Landings were up. The early season landings were high, but there were still tight eyes and pinched mouths, as they discussed the expected fall-off as the season wore on. At mid-morning he found himself standing at the end of the pier, staring out to sea. A flight of bearing skulls arrowed in over the headland and settled into the shelter of the outer bay, their heavy bodies making long splashes as they slid along the water's surface before slowing enough to actually land. They were migratory birds that went out into the open ocean to feed over the winter and flew back each spring to breed, nest, and raise their young. He stood there in the breeze, thinking about what it must be like out in the middle of the ocean for months at a time, no land for hundreds, even thousands of kilometers. That's how he happened to be standing in the village when the alarm sounded and the air rescue flitter streaked out of the ready hangar and screamed out to sea. A sinking feeling filled him. Whatever it was, it was serious, and it had happened to somebody he knew. He closed his eyes and leaned on his staff, willing the silence to engulf him until all he heard was his heartbeat. But he couldn't control it, and anxiety refused to let him concentrate. Cursing his weakness, he turned and walked to the rescue center. His staff announced him as he walked up to the hangar door, and the stricken looks on the technicians told him all he needed to know. It's my father, he said. Fur Grisham nodded. Yeah, Otto, it's your dad. We don't know how bad it is now, but we'll have him back in, he looked at the chrono, eight ticks. He'll be going directly to the clinic for stabilization. What is it? he asked. Ferg looked to Nancy von Danke, who was sitting at the terminal. Boxfish, she said. He's still alive, Otto, Ferg said quickly. We've got a chance. Otto knew of Boxfish. He'd never been out, but he knew. 
Everybody in the village knew of them. It had been a while, but even during his lifetime the boxfish had earned its name more than once. The wind rattled the shells on his staff as he stood there in the open door, and it brought him back from the edge. Does my mother know? he asked. Ferg and Nancy shared a look again, and Ferg nodded. Yeah, we'll send the bird back out to pick her up as soon as it drops off your father at the clinic. Nancy glanced at something on her terminal. ETA seven ticks, Otto. You might want to wait. Otto had already turned and was walking toward the clinic's pad. It was only a few meters away from the hangar. Already he could see the trauma team gathering just inside the big plexisteel door, watching for the air ambulance. As he walked up to the door, the head trauma tech started to wave him off, but Sally Mayers was on duty, and she shook her head and pointed to a place out of the direct line of fire and offered her tentative but sad smile. Otto put his hand in his pocket and a bit of wood nestled against his fingers. He wrapped his hand around it and turned, leaning on his staff, squinting into the breeze and the glare. His staff tinkled gently in the breeze, and his heart beat loudly in his ears. He pulled a bit of wood from his pocket and looked down to see the thick-bodied and tapered shape of a polar bear. He smiled faintly and gripped it firmly, thinking of how much strength his father was need to deal with the toxins racing through his system. The air rescue flitter streaked over the headland in a direct path for the clinic's pad, slipping its nose up in a controlled stall and dropping quickly, but delicately, onto the composite decking. Doors opened and people ran. Otto stood as if in the center of a maelstrom and let it wash around, over, and through him. His heart had time to beat eight times, completely and gloriously, before the gurney carrying the twitching shape that was his father started back towards him. Father, Otto spoke before the gurney even reached him. Richard's eyes were open and staring even as his body twitched. He raised a hand, awkward under the binding that kept him from falling off, as if to touch his son. Otto stepped forward, slipped the bear into the hand, which closed on it smoothly, even as the medtechs raced past him, even as the air rescue lifted off again, even as the plexus-steel door side-closed with a clack. Otto was left, standing alone in the aftermath. He turned to face the clinic, and spoke into the sudden void. I love you, Father, he said. Be strong. There was no one left to hear him. He stood there, waiting, letting the wind tell him stories. The technicians needed room to work, and the ambulance would be returning with his mother soon. He waited for her. It seemed like only heartbeats before the heavy flitter landed again, and his mother jumped down from the door, her deck boots still wet with fish slime and her jacket open. She spotted Otto instantly and took his arm wordlessly as they both walked into the clinic. They stepped into a tornado of information. Rachel, he's alive. We've sedated him and we've dosed him with acetylcholine inhibitors to try to slow the neural collapse. We got him very quickly. Rachel mumbled, thank you. Can I see him? They were ushered into a treatment cube where Richard was already encased in a diagnostic and treatment pod. The red warning lights were strobing on five of the six telltales, and a half a dozen medical people were buzzing around like angry hornets. Otto stepped back out of the way and focused on remembering his father, cool and strong, walking the tide line on Sandy Long. His mother made a small sound in her throat and stood with her hands thrust deep in her pockets, but standing so close to Otto he could feel the vibrations of her pounding heart. Together they stood, mute witness to the event unfolding caught in the moment like images in a strobe. One by one, the red strobes turned to amber, 
until only one remained an angry, frightening red. The medical staff came and pulled the drapes around the cube then, and, with solicitous noises, escorted Rachel and Otto to a small room with a couch and several chairs. Alan Thomas was there, waiting, and he held out his hands to Rachel, who squeezed them, and took a long, quivering breath. One of the medical people followed them in and briefed them. Words like stable and resting and time were used a lot. Otto could sense the woman's unease even as she tried to be comforting. Eventually, she ran out of words and looked to Alan. Come on, you two. He needs to sleep now. There's nothing you can do here. Let's go to the cottage and take it easy, huh? Richard is under sedation, and we will not wake him until at least tomorrow, the medical person said. The medications we've developed in the last ten stanniers are really quite effective, but they need time to work. Otto could taste the comforting lie in the air like smoke, but he didn't press the woman. He nodded to Alan and started out of the building, his staff thunking on the floor and rattling as he walked. His mother, head up, dry-eyed and scared, walked with him. Alan walked on her other side, but she took Otto's arm and walked slowly and steadily all the way back to the cottage without speaking. At the kitchen door, Rachel turned to Alan. Thank you, Alan, we'll be fine here, she said distantly by way of dismissal. Alan looked uncertainly from one to the other. I can have somebody stay with you, he started to say. Rachel shook her head. That's not necessary, but thank you. Otto and I can cope for now. Otto could sense her control starting to drift, so he released the latch on the kitchen door and opened it for her, providing the escape path into the house. He stood his staff beside the door and said, They'll let us know, and we'll go back in the morning. Alan, recognizing the dismissal, merely nodded and said, Call me, any time. Otto nodded and stepped into the kitchen. His mother was going through her normal tea-making ritual, taking comfort in the familiar and solace from the routine that let her focus on making the tea. She still wore her fish boots and parka, so Otto helped her slip off the heavy coat and hung it on the peg behind the door with his own. When the tea was ready, they sat together at the table and sipped without speaking. It wasn't as if they were waiting, either, more like keeping each other company. Finally, Rachel looked up at him and spoke. "'I'm going to go lay down, Otto,' she said. Stood suddenly and left the kitchen. He heard her bedroom door close and the bed squeak as she crawled into it. Otto poured a little hot tea into his cup, slipped into his jacket, and went out to the shop, carrying his tea with him. Nothing was going to happen for several hours. He lit the fire in the stove and built up a comforting blaze. He looked into the bucket of what he thought of as welky wood and pulled out several bits. One held a bearing skull, wings outstretched. Nodding to himself, he dropped the other bits back into the pail for later. He tossed some scraps into the stove and adjusted the dampers once more. Slipping the knife from his pocket, he settled his coat over his shoulders like a cape and leaned back in his chair to carve. Chapter 28, Aram's Inlet, March 16, 2305. Get Casey, Jimmy said, and I want to see Jake, Carruthers, and any of the skippers we can find. Okay, Jimmy, Tony said. My office, 10.30, he added. It's already 9.30, Jimmy, Tony pointed out. The meeting with the old man had lasted less than half a stan. That's okay, just tell him as soon as I can, he said. You got it, Skipper, Tony replied. Who can we get to run a fisheries models, he asked as an afterthought. 
Jake's kid Billy's probably the best we got, Tony said as the elevator reached the lobby. Jimmy looked at Tony curiously, but just said, Ask Jake if we can borrow him for a few days. Anything else? Yeah. Jimmy stepped out of the car and put a hand on his friend's arm to swing him around to look him in the face. No stim. We do it on coffee and Danish, just like the old days. But no stim. I don't know when we'll crack this problem, but when we do, I don't want to have to wait for you to wake up. Tony flushed a bit, but didn't look away. You got it, Jimmy. Okay. Then call Barney, he said with a grin. Have him open a tab for Pirano Fisheries and send over ten liters of his finest. And some of those cheese danishes? Tony grinned back and headed off to find a quiet corner to make some calls. Jimmy headed for the office, but instead of going up, he went down to archives. Janie Pritchard was there, as always, and looked up from her terminal with a big smile. Hiya, Mr. Pirano. What brings you down here? Hi, Janie. Call me Jimmy. I need survey charts, he said. A specific location, she asked. Coastline, western reaches. Scale? Whatever you got. Satellite imagery for same areas in the last 90 days. High-res, false color, true color, and infrared. Anything else? Jimmy thought for a minute. You got anything that shows fish in the sea? What kind of fish? Anything we can sell. Well, that's doubtful, but I'll look. Okay, thanks. When do you need these? She asked. Right now. I'll wait. She shot him a look, but decided he wasn't joking. You want them printed or forwarded to your terminal? He thought about it for about three heartbeats. Give me one print, true color, inlet on the north edge, 200 kilometers out, 2,000 wide for now. Send the rest to my terminal. He could almost see her eyes click over as she digested his directions. Her fingers slapped keys in a sharp staccato, and the printer plotter across the room started spraying ink on chart paper. Five ticks and you'll have the maps, she said. Now, let me find your other stuff. Fish, you say. Small smile curled her right cheek, and the tip of her tongue just stuck out a tiny bit as she stared, red, keyed, and searched her terminal. Jimmy snagged the first map off the plotter as soon as it was ready and started looking it over. I told him what he already knew. He sighed in frustration but kept looking, his eyes scanning back and forth, looking for anything that might give him a clue. The plotter tinged and signaled the end of the job, so Jimmy gathered the sheets and thanked Janie. All I got will be in your inbox in the next ten ticks, Jimmy, she said, but I'll keep looking if you can tell me what you need. Fishing grounds, Janie, he said. I need to catch a lot of fish really fast. Okay, Jimmy, she said absently. Jimmy took the maps to his office and taped them to the wall. He was studying them when Tony came in with Carruthers in tow. Casey's on his way. Jake's collecting his boy. Barney's sending a runner with the urn and the pastries. He wants to know if you want sandwiches delivered for lunch. Jimmy shook his head. No, but tell him we'll bring six for lunch. Tony tapped a message out and put his pita away. What are you looking at, Jimmy? Coastal maps. Here's the inlet. We need more places to fish. How can I help, Jimmy? Carruthers asked. Manpower, Jimmy said. Where are we? Any place have more than they can use? He didn't look up from his scan. Nobody extra here, and they're actually running short over in Calum's Cove now. Cheapskate may have a few spare hands loitering about. I'd have to get the database to see if there are any more. What skills are you looking for? Anything. Skippers are mates we can promote. Mates and hands. Probably need unskilled as well. Anybody up in the orbital we can bring down? Can we borrow people from Allied for the summer? Anything. I need to know what we got available. Okay, Jimmy. Let me go look. Jimmy grunted and Carruthers scooted out the door as Casey came in. Hey, Skip, what's the word? The word is we need to meet the quotas, he said. But you said... She started, confused. I know what I said, he replied. I need to find a way to be wrong. Okay, she said, but how? 
She looked at Tony, who just shrugged and opened the door for the Barney's delivery guy. He pointed to the work table at the side of the office. Set it up there, we'll deal with it. He thumbed the bill and added a nice tip, and the delivery guy left. We need more grounds, Jimmy said. I was working on the assumption that we only have this many places to fish. We need more places to fish, which will reduce the pressure on the banks, keep them from getting overfished and losing productivity over the summer, and let us tap into the new stocks at the same time. How are you going to find new grounds by looking at the walls, Skipper? He tossed her a pen. Follow the hundred-meter contours. We need a relatively flat plateau between fifty and a hundred meters deep. That's the most productive. He set action to words and traced a seamount he'd spotted on the map in front of him. Pick a map. Find the banks. Jake and his boy came in just then. Billy's eyes widened when he saw who was in the room. He had neck problems trying not to stare at Casey. Hi, Jimmy. What's up? Jake asked. Boats, Jimmy said. How many we got? How many can you build and outfit in the next little while? Depends on the boat. Simple boat? Small one? I can stamp them out one a day. Jimmy froze and turned to stare at Jake. One a day? Simple boat hull, Jimmy, he said with a grin. I got a nice simple ten-meter boat hull template. We use them for launches and utility boats around the inlet. Another day for the motor. How long for a trawler, like the seahorse, he asked. Depends. Maybe two weeks. Depends on what? Parts, mostly. The running gear take the longest. If I didn't need to put nets and winches and all that on it, maybe two a week. What other kind of boats you got templates for, Tony asked idly. Something I could make a nice yacht out of? Everybody chuckled at that. Almost anything. I can't build anything over 40 meters in this yard, but we got the templates for 100-meter tankers and freighters. We'd never find the engines for them, but we got the templates. Jake chuckled. Okay, Jake. Build me some sisters to the seahorse, Jimmy said. How many? Until I tell you to stop, Jimmy said. Jake looked at him as if he'd been smacked with a wet mackerel. You're serious? Deadly. Contact all the other yards. Get them building, too. You want all 25s? He exclaimed. Casey said, no. Build some of the 20-meter stern trawlers. Jimmy looked at her. They use different running tackle. You're going to run out of nets, gantries, and engines really fast if you only build that one design. This way you can build longer with the parts we have here. That'll give you time to build, buy, or steal more, she said quickly. Jimmy nodded to Jake. You heard the lady split them up. We don't have crews for that many boats, Jimmy, Tony pointed out. I know, and I don't have fish either. Billy? The younger Samson was about nineteen Staniers, still gangly and burning with curiosity. Yes, sir, he responded. Rumor is you know your way around the fisheries model. That true? Yes, sir, he replied. Okay, I need a projection out of the model. You feel like working for me for a couple of days? Working on the model? His eyes lit up, and he looked to his father. Yeah, working on the model. I need some projections on the various banks, and I don't have the time, inclination, or the skill set. Jimmy grinned at the young man. Are you up to the challenge? Sure, he said enthusiastically. Which banks you need projections for? All of them, Jimmy said. Billy's eyes snapped from Jimmy to his father and back to Jimmy before making the rounds of Tony and Casey. All of them? There's over 2,000 of them. Something like that, Jimmy agreed. You need a projection on all the banks within two days. I pay well, Jimmy said, and I need it today. Tony snickered, but Jake just shrugged when his son looked to him for confirmation. When do I start, he asked, and what kind of projections are you looking for? Right now, Jimmy said quickly. There's coffee and pastry there on the table. Help yourself while I log you in. Jimmy walked over to his own terminal and logged into the fisheries model with his Pirano corporate credentials. Don't delete anything, he quipped as Billy settled into the terminal. Delete anything? Billy looked at the display and realized just how much access he had. He stammered, no, no, sir, I won't. I need to know how many boats I can fish on any bank without summer slump kicking in, Jimmy said. I want full loads all season. 
How many boats is the maximum number for any of the grounds? Start with pumpkin, old man, and kelp. Billy settled into his work and started trying to answer the question. Jake said, good luck, Jimmy. If anybody can solve this, you can. Let me head down to the yard and check on store so we can get this thing going. Jimmy waved, and everybody went back to work. About a stand later, Billy Sampson announced, 20. Jimmy had just finished the first map and was on to his second. Casey and Tony were still on their first. 20 what, Billy? Tony asked. 20 standard boats, Billy answered. That's how many can fish the pumpkin without summer slump. You can do 25 and only get a 5% reduction on projected catches by October. Jimmy frowned. What's a standard boat? 50 metric tons a day, Billy said. Tony stopped and turned. What? Billy looked up at the three sets of eyes. According to the model, a standard boat collects 50 metric tons a day. You can fish the pumpkin grounds with 20 to 25 boats, which is 1,000 to 1,250 metric tons a day before summer slope gets above 5%. Jimmy and Casey both frowned. A seahorse is more than a standard boat, then, Jimmy said. Billy blinked back into reality. Oh, yeah, it is, he said. That design's rated at 80 metric tons. Tony added, and the stern trawlers are rated at 75. He looked at Jimmy. So about 12 boats on the pumpkin? Casey jumped ahead. Yeah, Billy said, whatever combination adds up to 1,000 tons a day. And we don't know how many there are there now, do we? Jimmy said. Both Casey and Tony shook their heads. 40 boats here, 35 over in Cheapskate. There's 23 in Calum's Cove, but they generally fish the kelp and old man, Tony pointed out. Well, Arnold's Bank and Sandy Grounds are off to the eastward of Cheapskate, so they have more choices, but assuming any kind of even distribution, that's still 30 boats in the pumpkin all season. Casey agreed. Yeah, it's no wonder the catches taper off so fast. Jimmy sighed. Okay, then. There's probably some simple algebra that'll tell us how many boats it would take to maintain our current landings, and my brain has a cramp. There's something I'm missing here. I can feel it. Tony, Casey, and Jimmy looked at each other. Jimmy turned to Billy and said, Confirm the model for us. What happens when we run 30 boats on the pumpkin all season? Billy slapped keys for a couple of ticks and reported... It looks like the landings fall off to about a quarter, around halfway, and stay there. That's about what we see. Would it be the same for all the banks? Casey asked. The model says so, but I think it's wrong. Why? Jimmy asked. Because it's assuming that every bank has the same elasticity, the same resiliency in the short term, Billy answered. When Casey, Tony, and Jimmy all looked at each other for translations, he added, the ability to replace the fish that are taken. I think some places are more resilient to fishing pressure because of localized conditions. Like the Nanking upwelling, Casey said. Exactly, Billy confirmed with a big smile. Curious, Jimmy asked, how do you know so much about this model? Billy looked a bit sheepish. Well, I, uh, I built a game. A fishing simulator game. A game? Jimmy asked. Tony hid a smirk by bending close to the map he was studying. Yeah, a net game, but I couldn't publish it because it was based on the Pirano model. You used a company model to build a fishing game? Jimmy laughed. Billy looked embarrassed. Yeah, but I didn't actually publish. I, I just tested it on the planet net. Casey blinked. You're the one who built Fish Finder. You've heard of it? Billy asked, surprised. I've played it, she said. It's very cool. Grinning, Jimmy shook his head and said, Okay, focus, people. Assuming a standard resiliency, we still need to know the capacity of every bank. He looked at Billy. How long will that take? Billy shrugged. 
stan or two. It's pretty formulaic, but I need to know the approximate areas for each bank. It's all in the model. It's just a question of listing them out. And there's a lot of them. Okay, fine. Go to it, Jimmy said. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from Wish by Rafael Garcia Perdigon. Available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Dorandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For a website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.dorandis.org/golden.